Welcome to podcast number 35 here at the Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. I've noticed that quite often when a business or other large institution and organization has some kind of crisis, very rarely are the statements to the press well thought out, articulate, and honest. There are, of course, exceptions, and I'd like to play one for you next. This was a case involving a response to a series of embarrassments affecting the prestigious Waffle and Pancake Council, founded in 1905 by Abraham Cadwallader. The following is an example of a chief executive, in this case, the great-grandson of the founder, handling the problem in a forthright and unflinching, and most of all, truthful assessment. As new president of the Waffle and Pancake Council, I'm pleased to announce that the council has returned to its old mission of promoting waffles and pancakes. The crime phase is over. The ringleader, Dr. Panzari, real name Willard Cadwallader, has been kicked upstairs, along with his chief henchman, Extractus. Others have been demoted or offered early retirement. I wish to apologize to all those we killed or addicted to drugs. This was certainly not the goal of our founder, Abraham Codwallader, when he started the Waffle and Pancake Council in 1905. We knew we had to act when, as recently as two years ago, public opinion surveys showed that the things most associated with the council were baby-stealing, extortion, and running over people with a motorboat. Waffles and pancakes were not even in the top ten. Things first started to go bad, in my view, in 1962. That's when the council announced that it would promote not only waffles and pancakes, but also, where appropriate, bank robbery. At first, we targeted banks that did not hold at least one annual pancake breakfast. But soon, even that restriction was dropped. The council was involved in everything from arson and prostitution to giving away waffle irons that we knew would break after just a few uses. The low point probably came in 1973 when the council announced that waffles and pancakes suck. There was a brief period of reform in which the council went back to promoting pancakes, but only ones laced with psychotropic drugs to turn people into mindless killing machines. The quality of the free waffle irons was much improved, but only because they were used to imprint crime instructions in the waffles. Things reached a crisis point in 2005 when the Waffle and Pancake Council announced that it had acquired nuclear weapons. The device itself was nothing more than a flat cake of plutonium, which, when struck with a uranium spatula by an unknowing stooge, was supposed to explode. The press had a field day. And even though most scientists agreed that the bomb would not have worked, it was enough to give pause to some on the council. Across the country, local Waffle Council presidents spoke up and were assassinated. But the message was starting to get through. The Cadwallader family received thousands of letters from ordinary citizens telling how they had been kidnapped and tortured by the council or had been promised money for delivering drugs but still had not received payment. That's when I was brought in. After the personnel shakeup, the first thing I did was fire the advertising agency that produced the spots, which had hypnotized so many people. Next, I ordered that the council bylaws be rewritten. 
so that the definitions of pancake and waffle were more traditional and not so vague that pancake could mean practically anything. Dr. Panzari's hideaway, Skull Island, is being restored to its original shape and topography and has been given its old name, Turtlehead Island. Also, the inhabitants of the island have been set free and given electric mixers without charge. Safeguards have been set up. All council members must have picture IDs, and if your face is surgically altered to hide your identity, you must get a new picture ID. Eye patches are prohibited, even with a note from a doctor. The council will promote waffles and pancakes only as food items and not as high-speed projectiles or suffocating devices. We are also severing ties with our so-called sister council. (laughs) We are also severing ties with our so-called sister council, the Muffin and Dynamite Board. The council chamber has been renovated. The dramatic underlighting, which made everyone look so sinister, has been taken out. The microphone system has been adjusted back to normal so people's voices don't have ominous bass sound. The chamber is now no smoking. I don't kid myself. It will take years to get things completely back to normal. For instance, in a concession to some senior council members, it was agreed that we would not only promote waffles and pancakes, but also a type of maple syrup whose fumes, when released, will knock you out. Dr. Panzari is still technically chairman of the board, but his deranged memos are now quietly filed away. In short, we are back to pushing buckwheat, not buckshot. We sing the praises of the Belgian waffle and not the Mexican waffle, which is a type of torture. I am hopeful that the words of Abraham Codwallader carved in wood and now back on the wall where the missile tracking screen used to be, will once again guide us. All a boy needs to keep himself amused is a good pancake. You've been listening to Waffle and Pancake Council, written by Jack Handy in a collection called What I'd Say to the Martians.
John Coltrane and Company with a Harold Arlen tune called My Shining Hour. I have been binging on a series of late that is available on Amazon Prime called Meerkat Manor, which follows a family of meerkats numbering around 20 plus animals that live near the Kalahari Desert in South Africa. It started as a project run by Cambridge University that has gone on for over 10 years now, which focuses primarily on the meerkats group behavior. Much of their lives consists of sentry duty in order to protect the group from predatory birds, snakes, and other meerkat families, while the rest of the family forages for food or raises the young. They're not very big, although they do have very sharp teeth and claws that they use for digging into the soil in order to build protective burrows and to unearth scorpions, grubs, and millipedes on which they feed. The family is led by a dominant female and to a lesser degree by a dominant male who mates with her in order to keep the family growing. Any other female in the family that gets pregnant is very likely to be driven into exile by the dominant female and probably will lose her pups. She won't be able to forage for food and at the same time protect the pups in the burrow. By human standards, it seems like a very cruel social organization but it does ensure that the biggest and most aggressive female will give birth to the fiercest pups and they will have the best chance for survival. That in turn will lead to the fiercest group to do battle for the choicest properties with the most abundant supply of food sought after by several meerkat families. It's a meerkat eat meerkat world in which they live. What makes this show so absorbing is the human-like quality of the meerkats standing on their hind legs in order to improve their ability to scan the surrounding area, both land and sky. They frequently encounter very poisonous snakes, including the Cape Cobra and a puff adder with lightning-like striking speed. They mob one of these snakes, bobbing their heads like a prize fighter until they drive it out of their burrow, but often lose a family member in the process. The narration is delivered by British actor Bill Nye, and the narration is terrific. I don't know who writes it, but it is truly masterful. Well, next, we're going to listen not to a meerkat, but a cat who could really play piano, and not just play that instrument, but compose for it like no other. I'm talking about Sergei Rachmaninoff, born in Russia in 1873. He established himself as a composer and conducted at the Bolshoi Theater. After the Russian Revolution, he decided to leave that worker's paradise and make his home in New York City. He died in 1943. Let's listen now to Prelude for the Piano Number no. 3 in G minor.
The following piece, How to Operate the Shower Curtain, was written by Ian Frazier and appeared in the Shouts and Murmurs section of the New Yorker magazine dated January 8, 2007. Dear guest, the shower curtain in this bathroom has been purchased with care at a reputable big-box store in order to provide maximum convenience in showering. After you have read these instructions, you will find, with a little practice, that our shower curtain is as easy to use as the one you have at home. You'll note that the shower curtain consists of several parts. The top hem closest to the ceiling contains a series of regularly spaced holes designed for the insertion of shower curtain rings. As this part receives much of the everyday strain of usage, it must be handled correctly. Grasp the shower curtain by its leading edge and gently pull until it is flush with the wall. Step into the tub if you have not already done so. Then take the other edge of shower curtain and cautiously pull it in opposite direction until it too adjoins the wall. A little moisture between shower curtain and wall tiles will help curtain to stick. Keep in mind that normal bathing will cause you unavoidably to bump against shower curtain, which may cling to you for a moment owing to the natural adhesiveness of water. Some guests find the sensation of wet plastic on their naked flesh upsetting and overreact to it. Instead, pinch the shower curtain between your thumb and forefinger near where it is adhering to you and simply move away from it until it is disengaged. Then, with the ends of your fingers, push it back to where it is supposed to be. If shower curtain reattaches itself to you, repeat process above. Under certain atmospheric conditions, a convection effect creates air currents outside shower curtain, which will press it against you on all sides no matter what you do. If this happens, stand directly under shower head until bathroom microclimate stabilizes. Many guests are surprised to learn that all water pipes in our system run off a single riser. This means that the opening of any hot or cold tap or the flushing of a toilet interrupts flow to shower. If you find water becoming extremely hot or cold, exit tub promptly while using a sweeping motion with one arm to push shower curtain aside. Remember to keep shower curtain inside tub at all times. Failure to do this may result in baseboard rot, wallpaper mildew, destruction of living room ceiling below, and possibly dripping onto catered refreshments at social event in your honor that you are about to attend. So be careful. This shower curtain comes equipped with small magnets in the shape of discs which have been sewn into the bottom hem at intervals. These serve no purpose whatsoever and may be ignored. Please do not tamper with them. The vertical lines or pleats which you may have wondered about are there for a simple reason, user safety. If you have to move from the tub fast, as outlined above, the easy accordion-type folding motion of the pleats makes that possible. When detaching shower curtain from clinging to you, or when exiting tub during a change in water temperature, bear in mind that there are 17 mostly empty plastic bottles of shampoo on tub edge next to wall. These bottles have accumulated in this area over time. Many have been set upside down in order to concentrate the last amounts of fluid in their cap mechanisms and are balanced lightly. Inadvertent contact with a thigh or knee can cause all the bottles to be knocked over and to tumble into the tub or behind it. If this should somehow happen, we ask that you kindly pick the bottles up and put them back in the same order in which you found them. Thank you. 
While picking up the bottles, a guest occasionally will lose his or her balance temporarily, and in even rarer cases, fall. If you find this occurring, remember that panic is the enemy here. Let your body go limp while reminding yourself that the shower curtain is not designed to bear your weight. Grabbing onto it will only complicate the situation. If, in a worst-case scenario, you do take hold of the shower curtain and the curtain rings tear through the holes in the upper hem as you were warned they might, remain motionless and relaxed in the position in which you come to rest. If, subsequently, you hear a knock on the bathroom door, respond to any questions by saying either, fine, or no, I'm fine. When the questioner goes away, stand up, turn off shower, and lay shower curtain flat on floor and up against tub so you can see the extent of the damage. With a sharp object, a nail file, a pen, or your teeth, make new holes in top hem next to the ones that tore through. Now lift shower curtain with both hands and reattach it to shower curtain rings by unclipping, inserting, and reclipping them. If during this process the shower curtain slides down and again goes on to you, reach behind you to shelf under medicine cabinet, take nail file or curved fingernail scissors, and perform short, brisk, slashing jabs on shower curtain to cut it back. It can always be repaired later with safety pins or adhesive tape from your toiletries kit. At this point, you may prefer to get the shower curtain out of your way entirely by gathering it up with both arms and ripping it down with a sharp yank. Now place it in the waste receptacle next to the john. In order that anyone who might be overhearing you will know that you are still all right, sing Fat Bottom Girls by Queen as loudly as necessary. While waiting for tub to fill, wedge shower curtain into waste receptacle more firmly by treading it underfoot with a regular high knee action as if marching in place. We are happy to have you as our guest. There are many choices you could have made, but you are here, and we appreciate that. Operating the shower curtain is kind of tricky. Nobody's denying that. If you do not wish to deal with it, or if you would rather skip the whole subject for reasons you do not care to reveal, we accept your decision. You did not ask to be born. There is no need ever to touch the shower curtain again. If you would like to receive assistance, pound on the door, weep inconsolably, and someone will be along. You've been listening to How to Operate the Shower Curtain, written by Ian Fraser and published in the New Yorker magazine in the Shouts and Murmurs section, dated January 8, 2007.
was Albert King closing the show with Born Under a Bad Sign. Folks, thanks for listening. This is Joe Weber saying so long from the Voice of the Arts. Mm-hmm.